Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, uh, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Diane C. Hi everybody, my name is Diane. I'm a compulsive overeater anorexic bulimic. Hi, Diane. Very grateful to be here. Is that audio okay? Yes. yes? Um, thank you very much, Susan, for asking me to speak. Thank you for leading the meeting. Congratulations to Deva and Nancy. Welcome to the newcomers uh, who identified and those who didn't. Welcome to anybody who's returning. Uh, I love this program. I didn't say that when I came here. I didn't know about it. I, um, I'm going to start by talking about what it was like before, and I'm actually going to um, use words to describe it instead of full sentences, because I end up running out of things, and there's a lot of things I'd like to share today. So my before emotions or actions, because I didn't sort of know what my emotions were. My actions and feelings that I knew of were anger, resentment, judgmental, finding the right diet, this time, binging, diet pills, spitting out my food after I chewed it, self-hate, telling myself I was dumb, stupid, and ugly, high-functioning on the outside, incredibly intoler- intolerant and judgmental on the inside, being the nice person who said yes when I wanted to say no, and if I happened to be able to say no, I binged over it because I felt so guilty. And if I said yes and didn't want to, I binged over that. So the net result was I was a daily abuser of food in one way or another. I tried every diet I read about or heard about. My years in Weight Watchers could be called the blender years. For those of you who are old enough to have been around, everything was about put it in the blender, put in the ice cubes, make it frothier, make it seem like more. I hate blenders, Um, seriously, because that memory is so painful of trying to fix it. And I do remember going on yet another diet of my own devising, because I thought I knew better. Uh, Know-it-all is another of my character defects. And getting down to what I thought was my magic weight, and then thinking to myself, well, I'm down at my magic weight, now what? And the next day I thought, well, I'm bored. And I've had uh, a sponsor in program years ago tell me that boredom is not an emotion. It's a cover feeling. So if I say I'm bored, something else is going on. And that's been really helpful for me. Um, And as my sponsees um, are aware, I pass things on to them. So I don't want to hear. I don't think anybody's ever tried to use the word boredom. Certainly not more than once. I also was enraged on a daily basis that I couldn't control my food, that I couldn't diet and stay skinny no matter what. I read fashion magazines. 
I um, practiced posing in those days. You had one knee out and one leg out and, you know, went like Cheryl Teagues. And, you know, it never looked the same when I did it. And um, I had no God in my life. My um, sponsor has me doing the steps again. And I wrote about step one. Uh, the first part of writing about step one is writing about food and when did I... What I, what I think it is, is when did I first remember being unhappy about my eating, which I've never heard before as a question, and that's one of the great things about being in program, is the longer you're in, the more you hear. I realized that I was probably five when I was unhappy with the way I was eating. I was the tallest kid in the class, male, boys or girls, and the heaviest. So I stood in the middle of the back row for pictures and it was sort of like a you know, triangle of heights in the back row. With the, that's how we did it anyway, with the tallest in the middle and then angling down that way. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable that I was in those pictures, partly because I was the biggest kid in the room. It wouldn't have called me obese. I was active. I was just, I was a big kid and I never had the experience of being a skinny kid. That's for sure. The, um, the shame around food came probably, I would say, around grade five. I can't, oh, those were the days when they put, when they did an annual physical. This is in Canada. Maybe they didn't do them. They did an annual physical by the school nurse of everybody in the class, and they would take one of those tongue depressors and write <coughs> your name, your height, your weight. So the big thing was, like, people wanted to see how much I weighed. And I knew it was the biggest number, and it was horrible. Um, and my nickname, I think by the end of middle school, for a brief period of time, but as we know, long enough to make a, an endless impact, was Dumbo. Um, my, I, have an, I have an older sister who was taller. They're all taller than I am. Um, taller and a little bigger than I was. And she was, she was Dumbo and I was Junior Dumbo. And the reason I say that is because it was so painful. And I went to see a couple of years ago a movie in the movie theaters about bullying. And it was extraordinarily painful to watch. And I was at a luncheon for, um, for a group that does a lot of psychology work. And a lot of the people at the table were psychologists. And I said, so, you know, yesterday I took myself to see this movie on bullying. Whoa, was it ever intense? Have any of you seen it? And every single one of them said, oh, I don't want to see that. Oh, that's too painful. Oh, I don't want to see that. And these are totally grown adults. That's how painful those early childhood experiences can be. And the kind of effect, for me, certainly, they had. My father, who was a Navy guy, as in uh, the Canadian Navy, and... Um, did exercises every morning his whole life and meditated every morning, did yoga, used to comment, you know, that I wasn't doing enough sit-ups. And so I had this discomfort with my body. My mother was always very supportive of me. And um, she, unbeknownst to us, really struggled with depression and killed herself when I was 17, right before I turned 18. And I was talking to my sponsor yesterday, trying to find the feelings about it. I can sort of see the actions from above, but I can't really feel into it. Um, and that's 40 years, almost 40 years ago. And um, I can feel later parts of my life, but that one's still hard to, to find what it was like. As a, because I lost her when I was a child, 
I don't see her as an adult like I did with my father who lived another 30 years. So those are the sorts of things that came up when I found these rooms. I found these rooms because I was um, in Montreal and somebody made a comment about, I, I don't know about everybody else, but my experience growing up was if I can just lose the 10 pounds. We were all talking about diets at school and what was it and what could we do. And somebody said, well, if I can't lose that, you know, my 10 pounds by the summertime, I'm going to go to that Overeaters Anonymous. I'd never heard of it, didn't know it existed. And I filed it away. I didn't make any comment. And I moved to New York. I was moved to New York. And I looked in the phone book and found a meeting at Lenox Hill Hospital on a Wednesday night of July 7th, 1987. And I went into that meeting and I stood in the back and I couldn't understand what this was. And if you're new, I'm sure you may be experiencing that at some meetings. I certainly did. I didn't. I, it just, I mean, if somebody stepped in here and knew nothing about this, what are they doing? They're talking about feelings. They're not talking about diets. They're not, you know, whatever. And that was my experience. And I, at the end of the, I left early because I didn't want to have to talk to anybody. I got home and I sat on the edge of the bathtub and I couldn't stop crying. Could not stop crying. I didn't know you were allowed to go more than once a week. So I waited, I had my last binge that week, and I didn't have a meeting list because I didn't know that there was more than one meeting a week. So I went back the next week, and uh, that July 14th date of 1987 is the beginning of the abstinence that I still have today. And I got a meeting list, and for the next couple of years, I went to some kind of meeting every day. I went to an OA meeting, I went to Open AA. I went to Al-Anon. The one I was working was OA. I just needed to go somewhere and talk about my feelings. In those days, this won't mean anything if you're a youngster. However, call waiting had just started. <laughs> so you could, we, there was a group of us, eight of us. We went to the same meeting every Sunday. We sat in the front. We knew each other. We had dinner together every single Sunday. We were, whoever was in town, most of us were all the time for um, two years and that's a lot of fellowship and a lot of the same group and talking about things and it really really helped and we would eat after that these are when you need quarters for phones on the way home we you know we get home and we talk to each other and you could go from one call to the other to the other to the other and it was so helpful and it was so important for me to connect with other people I'm going to list a lot of the things that happened for me in those first years in program I define my bottom line abstinence for myself is no binging, no purging, no diet pills. And for me, that's been my bottom line abstinence these years. I eat, I can eat anything in moderation. I had so much deprivation from those diets. If I see tuna fish in water again in my life, it's too soon. Um, my, I have a food plan. My sponsor knows what I'm eating. I have read the big book numerous times, cover to cover. I started at the beginning and I read through to the end from the, from like literally the inside cover, two pages a day, and it really helped me see the whole program. I'm reading the latest version. I read the third um, edition for a long time. I um, I discovered boundaries. I learned to make phone calls to people. I was told early on to make three phone calls a day, um, which I still do or text, but generally phone calls, because they're really important to me. 
I send my AEIOUs at least several times a week. And I don't want to see some of the old ones because I can only imagine what I was saying during some particularly crisis-filled weeks. Um, but they were so helpful for me to get the feelings out because that's what I ate over. I ate over people, places, and things. My OA sponsor commanded me to go to Al-Anon, and I generally do that. I do do that with all of my OA sponsees because I really believe, for me, those are the... I ate over that. What else am I going to eat over? Everything is about a person, a place, or a thing, or a city, or that's a thing, I suppose. So everything falls in there for me. And those are the things that triggered me. I wouldn't have been able to make that chain of connections before, but the program allowed me to do that. Uh, I worked through the steps. I um, have had relationships with women. The relationships with women have actually been easy for me, pretty easy for me, because I'm one of five sisters, and we're all incredible, four sisters and a brother, and we're all incredibly close, and that's what I'm used to. I treat, generally, I treat my friends like sisters, because that's my history of connecting to women. I changed careers in the program. I um, went from a very numbers-oriented career in banking to a career um, in entertainment, that's freelance and very different, and I love it, and I don't regret a minute of it. I remember reading um, an executive at a film company was quoted as, as saying, you know, would you lie naked on barbed wire to work in this business? And I would lie, would have lied, laid naked on bar barbed wire to work in that business, and that was how much I wanted it. And I had a sponsor, and I took the steps, and I did it, and it was wonderful has been wonderful, um, and I would lay naked on barbed wire, and sometimes it feels like I am, to stay abstinent in this program. Those pesky feelings can come up all over the place. I, um, uh, my sponsor gave me meditation cassettes, so we know how long ago that was. She gave me a book, and she finally took me to a meditation workshop on the July 4th weekend of 2003. And I learned a meditation practice that day, and I've been doing it every day since. doesn't matter what time I'm getting up. I can get up 10 minutes earlier to meditate. It's changed my life in a way I never thought possible. I have an old sponsor in another program who says you can split the people in program between those who meditate and those who don't. That's his opinion. Um, but I do find it's taken me to another whole level of acceptance. I um, love the third step prayer. I start every day with it. I make my phone calls. I go to at least a meeting a week in this program and a couple in other programs. Actually, I was already at one earlier today. Um, I define my food. I go to Al-Anon. I um, read program literature. I sponsor, I don't know how many girls because it doesn't matter. Um, it used to matter how many. And I don't have to pretend I remember where everybody is, so I tell them, you have to remember what step you're on because, you know, it's up to you. I don't remember things like I used to, and that's fine um, because part of my remembering everything was compulsive. I didn't ever used to need um, a phone list for the, all my numbers. I just remembered them all, and, and now it's different, the, the process. But those, you know, that sort of desperation not to forget, not to be left behind, not to be alone, all the things that had me eating day in and day out, and the promises daily that I'll do it differently. And because of the program, I have been able to do it differently. So let me talk about what it's like now. I um, wrote 
some ideas. Oh, the other thing about the food is, thank you, that um, I, uh, my sponsor and I have a, an understanding that I think is unspoken, that um, I send her my food and she doesn't comment unless she sees some kind of pattern. Or if that wasn't the understanding, it is now. Um, and that's what I try and do with my sponsees. I, I'll read it. I don't have any comment. If you ask me, fine. But otherwise, unless I see a pattern, um, I won't comment on it. I, um, I will mention that before I came into OA, I was um, struggling for many years with depression. I think it goes back to early teenagehood because I can remember my mother when I was, I had a best friend named Cindy who was a terrific athlete, could eat anything. You know, that's like the things we really remember. She could eat anything. And um, she was a great student and really comfortable. And we spent, in those days, we slept over to, you know, each other's houses, what are you wearing tomorrow, all those sorts of things. And um, she just was one of those cheerful people. And I was never one of those cheerful people. I don't know what that is like, actually. And, you know, um, I remember my mother saying to me one day, I was probably 15, and she said, why can't you just be happy like Cindy? Well, I had no idea why I couldn't be happy like Cindy, and I would have loved to be happy like Cindy. But I don't know the answer to that. I've um, been to doctors over the years, um, gotten outside help and done outside things that I needed to for depression and I will say I was on medication before I started away and I saw the doctor again six months after I got into program and I walked in and he said what happened to you and I said nothing and he said you're you're an entirely different person than you were something is so different about you and I said well I've been going to Overeaters Anonymous and I don't want to die today and I'm not planning to kill myself, and someday I'll give, you know, throw out the shoebox full of prescription pills that I've accumulated, which I kept until I was, I think, five years abstinent, just in case. And I, I had a gin, ginormous lethal dose because everybody gave me a different pill, and none of them worked because that really wasn't my problem. My problem was I had no access to my feelings. I'd never grieved my mother's suicide. I didn't know how to have a feeling. I didn't know how to set a boundary. I didn't know how to set up for myself. I didn't know how to eat squarely. I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust anybody else. I was enraged. I was bossy. I was a know-it-all. I was intolerant. I was judgmental. Shall I go on? I don't think so. Um, that's the stuff that I learned about in here, and that's those are the things I learned to do differently. I found a God in another whole way when I started meditating daily. And I think for me, I know a lot of the work in these last years has been going beyond living abstinently to living spiritually. What would God have me do? What is the next right thing for me to do? Can I say what I need to say? And is it kind, considerate, necessary, true? And if it doesn't fit that criteria, I have no business saying it. I... Um, Want, this program has become a way of life. I don't really think about it. It really, somewhere in the readings and some meeting I was in, talked about this being a philosophy of life, and that's really how I feel about it. Because when I came in and, and old-timers said, oh, the answer to all your problems is in the steps, didn't believe it. What are you talking about? How is this going to help me, you know, get a date or not hate my hair or, you know, all those things, get tickets to the right thing. Um, I have to be really careful 
to not take myself into self-sufficiency. I have to remember that I have to be dependent on God. I have to do my part, and I have to be dependent on God, because the minute I think I can do it, I'm in huge trouble. Um, someone, uh, when somebody disturbs me, disturbs me, meaning I don't forget about them, or I, you know, my thoughts run back to them, I have discovered and been told that my choices to deal with that are either make an amend, if I need to make one, which I can run by my sponsor, or forgive them. Well, I would like another option, which is to explain to somebody exactly what happened and why I'm right and why I shouldn't have to do those two things. But you know what? The longer you're in program, the fewer choices there are. That's it. You got an issue with something or somebody or something, forgive them or make an amend. That's it. Those are the only two things that could be going on if you're disturbed. And it's so simple. But believe me, it took me years to understand that because the wouldn't stop. Um, uh, I've heard people speak on relapse. And um, one of the things that I found really helpful for me, I haven't had a relapse yet. And that's what the program's taught me is yet. Um, I haven't thrown up yet because it's still a possibility. I only have this program for today. I also um, was taught a long ago, if something's a question, leave it out. If something is not an option, then it's not a problem. And I will say that um, the program has allowed me to live a life beyond my wildest dreams. I've got three different sort of careers going on at the same time. Um, and I love them all, and I go back and forth among them. I learned to read books in abstinence. I couldn't hold anything. I read novels all the time. I love them. I read nonfiction. I'm interested in the world. I didn't used to be. I talked to my sponsees about the responsibility to vote because that, I don't care who you vote for, you just need to vote because you're here and you're a citizen and that's about taking responsibility for our lives. Just like the traditions help us take responsibility for our meetings and our relationships in those meetings and the meetings themselves to make sure they keep on going. Um, I think... What I'd like to talk about is um, my God box. And the reason I mention it, I actually meant to bring it, but I forgot it. My niece made it when she was four years old, and it's a little box with stones on top of it and little stick drawings of her and me and sparkles on it and things like that. <laughs> She's in there more times than anybody else. Um, and, you know, I was showing it to somebody the other day, and I just pulled out random stuff from it because one of the great things about this program for me is I've learned not to care what other people think about me and I've learned that um, what other people think of me is none of my business whereas my whole life growing up was about you know what will the neighbors think literally that was said to us all the time what will the neighbors think um, I don't really care what the neighbors think um, and that's really recovery for me um, my niece I've shared about in meetings, my sponsors have heard about, she uh, has had food issues since she was eight. She's um, first rehab was 13 for anorexia, bulimia, cutting, borderline, um, depression. Kept on 
going in and le- leaving rehabs or demanding to go home. And the last rehab she left at 18 and went back to Colorado. I didn't know until six weeks ago that she had picked up heroin because one of her cousins called me and I used this program. What do I do? Called my sponsor, called the therapist I knew in program, called the therapist at the treatment center she used to go to. What do I do? I know and her mother doesn't know. How do I deal with that? That's something I would have eaten over. And eventually I did tell her mother. She went to the ER. She went through three detoxes in the last month and she's here at a rehab here. She just had her 30 days today off heroin and I'm so proud of her. I took her out today to shop because she's gained weight because I guess you don't eat a whole lot when you're doing heroin. Um, and uh, she hated, she didn't want to go to the store, she didn't want to go in anywhere, she hated everything, she hated her body, she was furious, nothing fit, and we didn't go in, a, we literally didn't go in a store. We went to the Grove and left the Grove. Um, and the lesson in that for me was, I don't have to react to it, I don't have to eat over it, I know she's struggling. And um, I had to, I took her out of the rehab at two and I had to have her back at four. She didn't like that, but those are the rules. And that's how I was. I didn't like the rules. I thought I should be different. I thought the rules were different. But it's so amazing. This is is so amazing for me to be able to tell her how proud I am of her. And I was able to do service. And a friend of mine who's in program uh, leads process uh, group for compulsive overeaters. And he is volunteering to take the group there because they don't have them. And, you know, that's how I can be of service. Can we get a meeting to these people who need it? Can we expose this program to people? And one of the great things I've noticed at the birthday party, which I love and um, have been um, doing a little job there for the last couple of years, is that people come from all over the country, all over the world, to come to this amazing annual birthday party. Thanks. And I'll just wrap up by saying one of the extraordinary gifts of this program is meeting people from other places And it has also, once again, given me gratitude for the extraordinary array, number, and variety of meetings we have in L.A., in New York, in other big cities. I have gone to meetings all over the world in any language of any program that they have. And um, the reason we have speaker meetings that are taped, the reasons we have meetings like this, are also to really reach out to people outside of the metropolitan areas. I've had people tell me they've never had an anorexic bulimic focus meeting in their town. And that, you know, if you struggle with that one, which I did, it's very different. My weight went from about 114 at a low and I'm five foot nine, um, and 165 at a high. And, you know, that's very different from being 100 pounds over or, and I'm somewhere in the middle of that right now, it's very different from being 100 pounds over, in, in I believe, anyway, for me. And um, that's one of the reasons we do this service, is to reach out to other people, help them find people who have their experience, and do what we can to help them. And that's one of the many, many gifts I've gotten from this program, is, is how can I help? How can I be of service? How can I help you today? And service, service with a smile is what they used to say when I came in. I'll settle for service. Um, but, you know, the longer I'm in, the more I can smile and, and really do what I need to. And I was given a mantra at the very beginning, um, my first year, which was, I am enough, I do enough, I have enough. And I have said that 
I don't know how many thousands of times because it's a mantra for me when I go want to go back in the olden days to the I'm dumb, stupid, and ugly, um, the the Coke bottle, braces, chubby, different nose, young girl. A couple of young women at the rehab yesterday looked at me and said, you are so pretty. And 99% of me thought they were teasing me from those old days. And that's what happens. You know, that stuff's old. And I have to work this program every single day to remember that today I love myself. I am enough. I have enough. I do enough. I'm lovable. Much to my shock and sometimes horror, I'm married. I've been married for 10 years. I have no intention of it. And I love them. And it's worked for me. Um, and I do the best I can today, and I'm imperfect, and I really try and make amends for that. Um, and I want to thank all of you for my recovery and for this amazing program. Thank you. We take, we're taking questions now until 6.20. Does anybody have a question? Hi. Can you talk a little bit about Sure. The question is, can I talk a little bit about how meditation has changed my life? Uh, I start with the third step prayer, and I say it really slowly, at the pace of God grant me well, grant me the serenity. That would, that's the first one. Um, God, I offer myself to Thee to do with me. Oh, my God, I can't even say it slowly out loud. Um, I want myself to the, to the to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. And I just relieve me of the bondage of self. And just, like, think about that. What does that mean, the bondage of self? That, for me, means being selfish. How can I not think about myself today? And um, if I were to describe it, I would say that I wake up on the floor. Emotion. I wake up on the floor. The depression is there in the mornings. I wake up on the floor, and by meditating, by the time I get out of bed, I'm actually up at just about eye level instead of eyes on the floor, literally from being down there. And that is huge for me. It, it makes me... The difference between meditating and not meditating is in here. Other people won't see it. It reminds me of a ballet dancer. I only wish that I had that experience, but it reminds me of a ballet dancer who said... If I don't uh, practice workout for one day, I know. If I don't practice workout for two days, my teacher knows. And if I don't practice and work out for three days, the audience knows. And that, for me, is a great description of meditation because it allows me to say, you know what? Everything's way better than I imagined it was, even though nothing's changed and God is in charge. Right, right, right. I don't have to do it. All I have to do is ask what God's will is for me. And that has absolutely changed my life because I always woke up with a, I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to answer this question. I have to get that right. I have to remember to blah. I have to fix blah. I don't have to. I have to ask for what God's will is for me. And that has been an amazing way to work the third step as well on an entirely different, deeper level for me. Did you have a question? I wanted to know exactly. I have it on, on a CD from Justin in New York, um, and I have copies of it. I stopped giving them out to people unless they asked. Um, so if you'd like one, I can get one for you. Thank you. Hi. Um, when you first started um, abstaining, um, what did you do when um, you felt that thing coming on? 
when I first got abstinent, what did I feel? What did I do when I felt a binge coming on? Is the question. What the first thing that comes to mind is phone calls. Because it took me years in here to really get a connection with God and trust that God, I can be in the desert alone with God and I'll be okay. I didn't trust that at the beginning. I needed other humans in this program. And that's where the, um, the, um, the call waiting comes in. I made calls in the morning before work. There's, um, there were OA tapes of the steps in those days which there are step workshops there's nine zillion more because of all the podcasts I used to put them on in the morning in the house while I was getting ready and listen to them you know I didn't always hear all of it because I'd go from room to room but it was so helpful to remind me I have to be reminded every single day why I need this program we talk about keeping it green and meaning um, remember what it was like to be binging lest we forget. You know, when we talk about, and I hear about people going into relapse, I listen for what they stopped doing. And many, many times they stop going to meetings. Many times they drop or lose their sponsor. Many times they don't send their food in. Many times they travel alone. Whatever it is, somehow it seems to me they get disconnected from program. So my work, and it is work every day, is to be connected to program. I've read for today the daily readings numerous times, Voices of Recovery I love. I will read a meeting list if that's what I have, and I'm not kidding, and it's way better than nothing. Thank you. Any other questions? Hi. You said uh, it's none of your business what people think of you. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how you've been able to internalize that and actually live that way? That's a very good question. Um, I think having... I'm so sorry. Um, I talked about uh, what other people think of me is none of my business, and I really believe that. Um, How did I internalize that? That's a really good question. Thank you. I... It happened really, really slowly. And initially it happened because my sponsor kept pointing out to me that it didn't matter what they thought of what I wore or what I said or what my hair looked like or what I did or how I did my job. Yes, it mattered to my boss because of my review, but it didn't matter other than that. And, and actually, it first came up around what I wore. Now, I, I would happily wear the same thing my whole life. I don't. I have an eye for, I don't have a gene that does design or fashion, and I'm happy to admit that today, which I wouldn't have done before. You know, I had to know everything. But I think the internalizing is, it's actually helped. My niece I spoke about, who's 18 and her brother's 22, and I started taking them for the summers, so I was half a dozen years abstinent. And... Um, you know, I could see them kind of raise an eyebrow at what Auntie Di was wearing or saying or carrying. You know, I'd say, oh, you can use my purse. Uh, no, thanks. <laughs> and, you know, even little things like that, you know, they didn't bother me. You know, I, it, but it took time. It was, it, believe it or not, it ties in with compliments. So when I got compliments, I used to say, you know, oh, you know, I love your scarf. Oh, <laughs> It's just some old thing, you know. Oh, it's got a stain on it. Let me show you where. Um, Seriously, seriously. Um, And, you know, it's not that nice. When, in fact, I love it and it was a present. But 
that has, my sponsor said, you know, when somebody gives you a compliment, all you are allowed to say is thank you. And I really had issues with that. And that was the beginning. So if I could accept that coming in, then I could learn to accept that who I was was okay and what, and, um, what they thought of me didn't matter because my work is to do it myself and check it out with my sponsor. Let me just keep saying those phone calls are so important. Time's up. Thank you for letting me be of service.